0: Uh, good afternoon again. Uh, yeah, my name's Ben. Uh, just wanted to introduce by saying that when I joined my last school, just like I did with Josh, they wanted to get to know people. They told people to, as a new staff member, tell us some fun facts about yourself. And they told all the other staff about it. So I mentioned that I was a Christian. I also mentioned that I like Seinfeld. This was a way of humanising me and helping me get to know people. Um, it worked. A guy came up to me afterwards and he was like, hey, I like Seinfeld. And I was like, great, I've got this inroad with this guy. I had no idea what I'd gotten myself in for. This, this guy was some sort of encyclopedia of Seinfeld. And he thought I was too. Uh, so he, what would happen is something would happen at school and he would come and, and nudge me And he wouldn't say, oh, remember this bit in the show? Doesn't you remind me of this? He would just say an episode name. And it didn't even necessarily say what happened in that episode. He'd just be like, the suitcase. And expect me to be able to join the dots about what he was referencing. And I just, I felt I was consistently disappointing this guy, right? He didn't take the hint. He was like, oh, he just might might have forgotten that one. He'd regularly do it. He, He kept doing it. Uh, and in fact, he told me that every day when he gets home from school, he watches an episode with his son every day. I was like, this man is discipling his family in Seinfeld, right? Like, I, I, had, I, I, f- I felt so bad. Uh, honestly, this man had tied Seinfeld to his, to his head and his hand, right? Uh, it, it was on his mind and his heart. Deuteronomy stuff, he was doing it with Seinfeld. Jerry was his lord, and I just, I felt, I actually regretted having said it in the fun fact because I was like, this guy's devotion to his Lord makes me seem like a complete fake. As we look at this passage today in Acts 2, uh, we're ultimately thinking about what is our response to Jesus. Uh, we're thinking about this amazing Pentecost event. Secondly, as the crowd asks, we're going, what does this event mean? And we'll ask along with the crowd, how do we respond to that event? So I'll pray for us and then we'll begin. Lord, as we encounter this amazing chapter, this long chapter, uh, help us to understand uh, how the Pentecost event shows who Jesus is. Help us to consider how we have responded to him. Help me as I explain the passage too, to be faithful to your word. Amen. Okay, so just as we set the scene uh, in this passage, let's set the scene in Jerusalem. It's the Pentecost festival, which is a harvest festival. Pentecost means 50 days after Passover. So Jesus dying at Passover is about 50 days ago. There's still people in Jerusalem and a lot of Jews from other parts of the, the world have come to Jerusalem for this event. That's one scene. A second scene is the disciples. The disciples have been told to wait. If we we flick back to Acts 1 in our Bibles, which I hope that you've still got those open, if we we flick back to Acts 1 uh, and pick it up in verse 4, while he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, Is what you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the disciples are waiting for that power to come from the Spirit. And as we pick up at the start of chapter 2, that happens. So let's pick it up from uh, chapter 2, verse 1. So when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues, like flames of fire that were divided, appeared to them and rested on each of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages, as the spirits gave them ability for speech." As we look at that little segment there, I think that we need to pick up on some things that are and are not true about it, right? So here's the first one. The description of the Spirit coming seems quite natural, right? You notice all this sort of language. There's, it's like a wind, like tongues of fire, all these sort of things that you can see and hear. But notice, they are like those things. It is only like a violent rushing winds. The, the, the flames of fire, that, it's like they are flames of fire. Don't get confused that this is a natural event. This is a supernatural event. That's the first thing. The second thing that I think that we need to pick up about this event is that some people, the way they treat this passage is, these are, is when the, this is when the disciples get their superpowers. This is when the disciples went from normal people to superhuman, next-level Christians that are empowered in a different way to you and me. That's not true, right? What what did um, uh, the the verse say? It says they have that ability as the Spirit gave it to them, right? This is not about them losing their dependence on God. This is about them being dependent on God to do God's work, right? These These are normal human beings. They are sinful human beings, But they are empowered by the Spirit to do God's work, like us, right? They are empowered by God to do God's work through His Spirit. And what is that work in this context? It is declaring God's wonders to the nations. So these two scenes, the first scene that we had with with, uh, all the the God-fearing Jews from around the world in Jerusalem... And the second one, where these newly empowered disciples, uh, they meet. They meet together. The Galileans get thrown into the mix, uh, and they begin to declare God's wonders to them. For me, uh, joining SNAC uh, from the Shire, it seems like this sort of collection of nations. Uh, Last weekend at 9am, I spoke to a guy who was from India, then spoke to a guy who was from Nigeria. It's just an amazing... You might not feel like that, but for someone from the Shire, which is ultra white, right, uh, this is what I feel like. When I go out for, for dinner with people from the Shire, the, the, wait, the waiter says something like, oh, a seventh pad thai. Wow, creative. <laughs> so for me, this is what I feel like when I'm at snack. But the Galileans being in the mix is an amazing thing, and they are declaring God's wonders in, in languages that people understand. They are not heavenly languages that cannot be understood. People are hearing God's wonders in ways that they personally can understand. It is an amazing event, and the crowd wants an explanation. That's also worth zooming in on too. Uh, If we look at 2 verse 5, we'll pick it up there. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused Because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? They can can add it together. They know Galileans don't speak these languages. How is it that this is occurring? Uh, Jump down to verse 12. They, they, They list out all the nations and then they say, They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What could this be? We also get a reaction in there. But some sneered and said, They're full of new wine. Two things to pick up there. One is this we often think that people in the ancient world didn't live in a rational logical place where they wanted explanations for anything right? Like the 5,000 rock up and get fed with a small amount of bread and they just go, oh crazy world, you know, stuff like this happens all the time because I don't think logically. No, they want an explanation They're, they're rational, they're like you they want an explanation for things that are crazy right? That's the first thing the second thing is, the first explanation is offered is that they're drunk and that gave them the powers of speech, which I think we all know is, is, would defy the, the, the laws of logic that we're aware of. But notice this, isn't it interesting how someone would prefer to believe an irrational explanation of something like that than to accept an explanation which is going to require that God exists and God might have ownership over their life. I'll say that again. People will prefer an explanation that means that God or anything supernatural, anything that affects their life, is kept at arm's length, is protected. Uh, they they they're not sort of imposed upon by God or any claim that He might have over them. I think that's what is happening in that first explanation. Who will answer the crowd's question? Peter will. Peter stands, and ultimately his sermon is an answer to that question. What do these things mean? What could this be? I think that Peter standing up at all is its own crazy thing. There's a lot of crazy things in this chapter. Peter stood up is three words that are some of the craziest, if you remember him. We'll touch on Peter's transformation uh, in coming weeks. We're not going to spend time on that, but you've got to do something with that. right? The guy who was scared of a servant girl Again, 50 days, right? This isn't years of self-help, and he's on the other side of that. Uh, 50 days later, and he's standing up in front of the same crowd who yelled, crucify, crucify. We won't preach that sermon now. It's later on, but you have to do something there. And Peter stands up to answer their question. He preaches what is ultimately the first Christian sermon. This is the first Christian sermon, right? <laughs> is what is what Peter preaches, and here's what he begins by doing. He brings them back to what Joel said would happen when the last days came, right? Because remember, these are Jewish people. He starts with the Old Testament because they're Jewish people, right? And he says to them, hey, you want to understand what's going on now? Remember what Joel said, right? Let's pick up from uh, the beginning of Joel's prophecy, verse 17. So chapter 2, verse 17. Actually, we'll go from 16. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. When you see the Spirit falling on people, all sorts of people, you know that it is the last days. And if we jump down to verse 21, we see what that means. What that means is, then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what Peter starts off with. You see the Spirit falling. That means that it's the last days. You you want to know what Pentecost is, God-fearing Jews? It's a calendar marker. It's ushering in a new age, right? This is a change of of era. This is the last days, and that means that you can call on the name of the Lord and be saved because the Spirit is being poured out. Secondly, uh, he moves on to speaking about Jesus very fully and specifically Uh, In 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. It's an amazing verse, isn't it? God pointed out to you, this man. You know this. You can't claim ignorance of this. God had a neon sign. God, had, God was aiming at this guy. And what did you do? You killed him, but God raised him up just like David prophesied that he would. That's the second prophecy that we see. We won't be able to look at either in depth, but, he, but he's saying, look, hey, if you're Jewish, you should know this was going to happen. God told you it would. God told you it would. God's not going to let him decay God will raise him up. Peter brings these two ideas together in the final part of his sermon and he he says who Jesus is. We'll pick up from 32. So Peter is now answering their question fully. God has resurrected... So we're from verse 32. God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God, since he is now enthroned, he's now king... Since he has been exalted by, uh, to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. So do you see what, uh, what, what Peter is saying there? What he's saying is that this is how you understand what Pentecost means, right? It's, the point is not the tongues. The point is not... The wind. The point is not any... Like, they, those things are a signpost because what, what Peter says by quoting that is, therefore, because God is king, he pours out the Spirit. The focus is on God is king and saviour. Jesus is king and saviour. That's the point. He's answering the question by pointing them to this Mean, And we see this in verse 33 and 36. Let's pick it up from 36. Therefore... Let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He is Lord and Messiah. That's what this means. That's why you heard things in your own language. It doesn't terminate with the Spirit. It doesn't terminate with the Pentecost event. The Pentecost event is supposed to point you to a throne and point you to a cross, that Christ is Lord And Saviour. We then see the response of the people in verse 37. When they heard this, when they heard this, they were, whoops, they came under deep conviction. Some other translations put this, they were cut to the heart. You might have memorised that in a different translation as cut to the heart. It's an amazing verse. I think what's happening there is that these people realise that Jesus is Lord and Saviour. I, I, I like cut to the heart, right? Because I feel like sometimes, I think if, I, if I'm thinking about the language of deep conviction, I'm thinking about a fact that I know is true, but I don't really want to do anything about right like you sometimes coming back from the dentist is like that you come back with a bit of deep conviction or just thoughts that you have from time to time like i should drink more water i know i should you know i feel feel like that's sort of what i think about i'm thinking about deep conviction but man these people were cut to the heart i think that explains the sort of reaction that you see in them and we need to keep in mind also, this is not something that they manufacture in and of themselves. God cuts to the heart. Remember what we saw in Acts 1. Jesus says, uh, it's said of Jesus uh, by Luke. This, I, I began my first book about what Jesus began to do and teach. He's, he's continuing here. Jesus cuts to the heart. We, we see in Hebrews 4.12, That God's word is living and active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. And as these disciples preach faithfully about who Jesus is, the Spirit cuts them to the heart and they respond. Jesus is Lord and Saviour. It is the end times. He has come once, he'll come again. And that means that you can turn and be saved. And that is what they do. 3,000 people become Christians that day. It's an amazing thing. Now, for people here, you might not have thought well or thought fully about who you think Jesus is. What this passage is saying is, is that he is Lord and he is saviour. He's king, he's in charge, and he's also the one who saves. Maybe as you consider who he is, Maybe you better understand who you are. Maybe you better understand how you should respond to him, which is to repent. Let me urge you strongly. That is what Peter does in the rest of that sermon. With many other words, he urged them to repent, to turn to him. Maybe that's something that you need to do. For those of us who have done that, I still think that an issue can be that a lot of Christians are willing to take Jesus as either Saviour or Lord, but not as both. There are all sorts of religious people in the world that I have met who very much understand that God's supposed to be obeyed. They get that. The idea that God saves them, that God forgives them, that God is for them, they they can't understand it. They reject it. They think God isn't like that. Now, that's not always our danger. I think that sometimes in our churches, the danger is far more the other way. We're willing to have a saviour, but we're not willing to have a Lord. We're not willing to have a Lord. Uh, What can that look like? What can that look like? What it can look like is Jesus solves a problem for you that's going to occur in multiple decades when you pass away. That's what Jesus does. He saves you when you die. What does he do now? If Jesus isn't your Lord, Jesus becomes relegated to a position where he might be a life coach. He might be a cheerleader on the sidelines of your life, ready for when you need him to give you a pep talk. Perhaps he falls more of the place of a trusted advisor Someone who you go to when you need help with the decisions that you are making. And I'm, not, I'm not saying he's less than any. Of Of course he does some of these things, but he is more than these things. This, this, sort, of, this sort of Christianity I'm describing is like the Seinfeld fan I am, right? Light. <laughs> I'm Seinfeld light, right? I saw a guy who Jerry was his lord and I realized this has no impact on my life at all. And how many churches, how many Christians do you see where, and sometimes it's us, where we're doing Christianity-like, happy to take Jesus as a saviour, but unwilling to submit to him, to obey him, to be cut to the heart, to be continually repenting to him. Of the rooms of your life, imagine your life as a house, how many, how many rooms is Jesus invited into? As a guest? Or does he own it? Maybe some questions worth thinking about. How how big is your Jesus? How big a Lord is He? Is He Lord over your, your week or just your Sunday? Is He Lord over your wallet? Is He Lord over your marriage? over your singleness, over your career? Or is he just a saviour and you handle those things? In David's prophecy in the Psalms, he says, you have revealed the paths of life to me. Coming under Jesus' lordship is freeing. It's beautiful. It's amazing. If we're willing to do that. We see something of what it means to uh, respond to Jesus as Lord and Saviour in the, in the description of the early church community at the end of the chapter. Right? Now, th- these guys, again, don't do this sort of superhero thing that we we're doing with the apostles. Right? This isn't like a perfect church. Seriously, if you think these guys are a perfect church, you're not going to survive long throughout the rest of the book of Acts as, as the early church is described. Right? These are sinful people. These are messy people. But they're marked by some amazing things in this first chapter. They're devoted. To, to Christ's teaching. They're devoted to his teaching. That's lordship stuff. Their love is generous and sacrificial. And another thing is they're growing. These are the sort of moves that the Spirit makes. And make no mistake, they are just as fantastic, just as amazing as the moves that the Spirit made when he enabled his apostles uh, to speak in other languages. Right? This is transformative community as we come under Jesus' lordship. I'll leave you with that challenge. Think, do you need to consider whether you have come under him as Lord as well as trusted in him as Savior? I'll pray that the Spirit will enable us to do that. Well, God, thank you that uh, we are in the last days. We know that that creates a sense of urgency. It clarifies things. It means some things are important and some things aren't. What it certainly does mean is that your son has come, your son has died, and your son has been raised. And that means that we can be saved. It also means that we can be freed from our own.